electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, is it safe to go back to school? Former FDA chief Dr. Scott Gottlieb on the risk and the politics. I think we need to take an approach, try to provide incentives and carrots rather than sticks, not jawbone the governors and the schools into reopening in, in the, into conditions that may not be conducive to trying to control spread. And can we get the economy back up and running as the coronavirus continues to spread across the U.S.? Former White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. People don't feel safe sending their kids back to school. People don't feel safe visiting their elderly parents. If we could solve some of those problems, the economy will fix itself of its own devices. It's Monday, July 13th, 2020. Squawk Pot begins right now. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan. And Melissa Lee is hanging out with us once again. Melissa, it's nice to see you. Becky's off today. She'll I'm be back, back later be this back. week. Back uh, in the stacks. Back it in is the great stacks to- somewhere. Back, back in oh, the library with the books. Stacks. With the books, yes. you mean. Yes. First up on today's podcast, a COVID update. Monday morning, U.S. pharma giant Pfizer and German company BioNTech announced that two of their experimental coronavirus vaccines have been fast-tracked by the FDA. This news came after a weekend when Florida reported the highest single-day total of new coronavirus cases for any U.S. state since the pandemic began, bringing the total number of infections there to more than 260,000. The state to hold the grim record before Florida? New York back in April. Though case numbers are now higher in Florida, state officials are reporting fewer COVID-related deaths than New York did. COVID testing in the Sunshine State has ramped up since Florida reopened its economy in early May, and businesses are forging forward despite the virus's spread. Amid the spike, Disney World, the Magic Kingdom and Animal Kingdom welcomed back a limited number of visitors on Saturday. Disney World isn't the only trip kids and parents are keen to take as the summer wears on. Families are wondering whether schools will be safe when the academic year begins. Here's Joe Kernan. Let's talk to Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He is a former FDA commissioner, a CNBC contributor, serves on the board of Illumina and Pfizer, and his new op-ed in the Wall Street Journal is titled, Schools Can Open Safely this fall, and uh, you go into a lot of, um, of what that means in terms of being able to do that. And, and you also, you reference the, the politics surrounding this, that it is a contentious issue, uh, Doctor. And, and I, when I saw the headline, I said, well, Scott is wading right into the middle of this, which takes some courage by, by, by saying you think that, that it can be done, because there's a lot of people that say it should not be done at this point. How, what, what got you to that conclusion? Did you, did you think about it? Did you think about whether you wanted to, to, uh, to take that position? And what would it take to do it safely? Well, look, I don't think this is binary. I think you can reopen schools in most states and most localities, um, but you need to leave discretion to local school districts to put in place measures that are going to prevent outbreaks. We need to be concerned about outbreaks. I think there's some people who would throw caution to the wind and say we shouldn't be worried about outbreaks because kids are less likely to catch the virus and less likely to spread it, and that's true. 
and that they're less likely to have bad outcomes. And so far, the data does suggest that. But less risk doesn't mean no risk. And we've seen bad outcomes in some children. And there's also some data that suggests that even though kids are less likely to spread the virus, they compensate for that in terms of their behavior. So they're less likely to catch it or spread it, but they do things that make them more conducive to spreading. Um, and there's also been studies showing that the viral load on the, on the nasal swabs in children is just as high as in adults, which suggests, especially older kids, which suggests that they may be just as contagious. So I, need, I think local districts need discretion to put in place measures to try to avoid outbreaks. And that might mean going towards a hybrid model where you have some distance learning during the week and some in-classroom learning. I think what would be regrettable is if uh, districts were forced to put in place approaches to the school day that took away some of that discretion that they would have to implement to de-densify their schools. And different districts are going to have different opportunities. If you're a crowded school district, you may not have the same opportunities as a school district that has a bigger physical plant. To do it safely, how much money do you think it would take, and um, where should it come from? It's going to the states are strapped, cities are strapped, everybody's strapped, but uh, it's going to have to be federal. What? How much do you think it would take? It's it's hard to say. I've had discussions with folks on Capitol Hill. I think you're going to see money um, from Congress to help support the schools. I think we need to take an approach, try to provide incentives and carrots rather than sticks, not jawbone the governors and the schools into reopening in, in the, into conditions that may not be conducive to trying to control spread, but try to give them the incentives, the resources they need to do that. And so certain things are going to become routine, hand-washing stations in schools, um, distancing between uh, chairs. They're going to put, put in place uh, conditions to try to keep students together so you don't have all the students intermingling, but you keep students within a social network. Other things are prohibitive, like testing. If we can get testing into the schools and do a better job of some routine surveillance testing, like what the colleges are doing, that would be a high degree of oversight or protection, if you will. Not foolproof, but it would provide a higher degree of protection. We also need to make sure that teachers get proper protective equipment, because there are teachers who are going to be much more vulnerable than the students, and they need to have ways to protect themselves. And that might mean good masks and 95 masks that they could wear during the day and change as appropriate. So there's controversy now about Dr. Fauci, and, and I think he's great, a hero, obviously, the service. But would, am I wrong to say that the doctors are, are about saving lives, protecting lives at, at all risk, and that there's sort of a, a tension between doctors and, and let's say, a, um, someone, a, a social worker that, that sees what happens in, in times when uh, people don't have jobs or people are, are cooped up or whatever, and they... they don't necessarily overlap completely. And, and I don't know whether this, uh, this is an Alex Berenson uh, quote here, that nearly twice as many people under 65 have died from overdoses as from SARS. Do you know whether that, that uh, from COVID, would that surprise you, doctor? And what, what, does that put anything in perspective in terms of, of just highlighting that there, net-net, there are things to consider in terms of staying closed? If, for example, if schools did not open, at all, which a lot of people would like in the fall, are do those benefits of opening the school, even with a risk, outweigh what happens to, to the economy and to the, the negative things that happen from a closed economy? It's hard to even talk about it without people saying that you're callous or a, or a ghoul or something. But, I mean, it needs to be taken into account, does it not? Well, look, I've talked to Republican and Democratic governors, and, and they all are struggling with this, and they're all going to reopen the schools in some fashion. I've talked to Michigan, uh, Connecticut, uh, Governor Lamont, 
um, Maryland, Hogan, Baker in Massachusetts, others as well. And they're all struggling with this on how to do it safely. But I think they're all committed to it. And they're all actually, in my view, based on what I know, are going to reopen the schools in, in some fashion. You know, I think sometimes as physicians, you're guilty of not looking at all of the implications because you just might not be aware of the data. But I don't think Dr. Fauci is one of those physicians. I think he's very schooled in this and he understands the implications and the trade-offs um, and weighs that data. I've been in a room with him when he considers a very expansive view um, when taking public health positions. So I think he's one of the individuals who does look expansively at these kinds of issues. I, I don't think he necessarily would, would come down on, uh, and agree with you on, on your op-ed today. But I don't know. Maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't. But you, you two must have diverged on certain things, I would think. Well, we, not, not really. I mean, Tony okay. and I only uh, we collaborate on things where we had a lot of agreement around you know, development of certain therapeutics and trying to advance certain right. ways to bring new products to the market. But I suspect he would uh, see the trade-offs inherent in, uh, right. in not reopening the schools and look for a way to do it. Most people that I talk to want to get the schools open. The question is how, and how worried are you about large outbreaks? Um, if you're still concerned about large outbreaks, you want to put in place some measures to try to reduce the risk of them. There's some people who say we shouldn't worry about it at all. And I just think that's wrong. We have to have some humility and recognize there's a lot we don't know about this virus. And it has not been epidemic in children yet. We don't know what would happen if it got into 10 or 15 million kids, as the flu does every year, because we've largely sheltered children to date. Two things, by the way, just on the, on the, the drug overdose number, uh, 68,000 people died in 2018. That's the last CDC number uh, that I can find. Uh, clearly, more people have died under from six, COVID. Under uh, 65. Just, under, under 65. Well, if, if, on, an, on an age adjust, you know, on an age adjusted basis, well, that's I'm, what I said. I'm, I'm yeah. sure I'm sure that, that that number may very well be right. right. But just okay. in terms of a t- total total death number for the year, 68,000 relative to the 130 right. we're 60, at now. And but I, but I we're imagine, talking about it. It's a, it's right. under 65. The, the disease, the risk for the disease is. You know, we've talked about it again and again and again. It's much, what is it? It's 99.5% of people will live or whatever uh, under 65 or more. Anyway, go ahead, doctor. Well, and we're getting better at it, too. Um, The question I had for Dr. Gottlieb, it's it's sort of going back to a question we've talked about even the past week or two, but I saw that you cited it again in in your article, which I I almost thought should say schools should be opened with a big asterisk because then you had, you know, five or six points of the things that needed to happen to, to, for this to actually work out and to work out well, be, be PP and testing and the like. But the question that I really had is that you, you cited Germany, you cited Denmark, and then you cited Israel separately. And we've tried to, we've sort of gone down this road before, but in the case, obviously, in Germany and Denmark, it's worked out. In the case of Israel, it didn't. And there seems to be no scientific consensus about why that was, except for the fact that the Germany and Denmark didn't have lots of spread and Israel did. So how many how many cities in this country do you think can't open right now because of spread? Well, look, it is true that when we look at every other country, including Israel, uh, they reopened against the backdrop of having crushed their virus. There wasn't a lot of spread. Israel didn't have a lot of spread at the time either. And then spread reemerged after they reopened their economy. The only country that had schools open against the backdrop of a fair degree of spread with Sweden. And so that's what everyone extrapolates from. We didn't study that systematically. We don't know how many kids were really infected. There weren't good seroprevalence studies done in that country. So we really don't know. We also can't compare the Swedish uh, population of children to the U.S. We have more comorbid illness among young people in this country, more asthma, 
more obesity, more diabetes. And so there is going to be higher risk with our school age population. But in terms of the situation here in the U.S., I've said this before. I think it's going to be very hard for certain states or certain cities right now to reopen on time. And in fact, you've already seen Arizona delay the reopening of their school and they might have to do school system and they might have to do it again. It's going to be much easier to reopen schools this fall in Massachusetts or Maryland or Michigan than in Miami or Houston right now. And I suspect some of these cities are going to have to delay their openings, even if they haven't affirmatively done that yet. Because when you're in a situation where your hospitals are overrun, your morgues are overrun, you can't get enough medical personnel, you're not going to take a step that you know on the margin is going to increase spread. I mean, you can't argue that opening the schools isn't going to have some impact on potentiating additional spread, even if it's just among the teachers. But the students themselves, the evidence shows that they are vectors. They may not be as robust vectors as they are when it comes to the flu, but they are vectors in some sense. So when you're right on the precipice where your healthcare system's tipping over, you might not be able to do this. And the, so the number one thing you have to do to reopen the schools is get your spread under control. That's what these cities should be focused on. So with all that said, Dr. Gottlieb, do you think Disney World should have opened on Saturday? I mean, it's, it's in a state where, well, where COVID cases are spiking to record highs. It's a place where lots of children go from all parts of the country. Well, look, the governor pushed very hard to get it open. Um, I, would, I would have prioritized opening up things like schools, things like businesses that contributed to the GDP, although Disney's an important part of Florida. But I wouldn't have opened the indoor congregate setting, certainly. Disney's a little bit of a separate matter because most of it's outside. I'm not sure how they're opening. But things like bars and restaurants probably should have been last on the list. If you were really trying to prioritize getting yourself into a situation to be able to open your schools, you would have put off opening the bars um, this seems to spread very efficiently in indoor congregate settings, particularly in air conditioning, which is, seems to suggest it's a sort of vehicle of spread. And remember, with, um, with sort of aerosolized spread, is this airborne or is it droplet transmission? That's not binary. It exists on a continuum. And something that's droplet transmission, and this may well be droplet transmission, can approximate airborne transmission under optimal circumstances. And those optimal circumstances are indoor congregate settings with yep. certain kinds of airflow. Right. And those are the venues I would not have opened first. Doctor, the, the, just I know you look at all these numbers in Florida, obviously, setting records for, for new cases. Are you seeing the troubling rise in deaths uh, and, and hospitalizations, ICU beds? Because I do see... You know, everybody's got seems like they have a, a, a horse in this race in, in, in trying to point things out are because it's in a younger demo. Are you seeing less ICU and less hospitalization than you would expect? And is it is it still at a point where the healthcare system is not overwhelmed in Florida? And do you expect deaths to rise? ICU uh, to go to 100 percent in Florida. Is, is that the worst case scenario? And are we looking at that now? Well, deaths are going to start to rise. We've probably cut in hospital mortality significantly. So previously in hospital mortality, depending on the study you were looking at, was anywhere from 20 to 30 percent. And some hospitals in New York was as high as 50 percent. I wouldn't be surprised if we cut it in half. I wouldn't be surprised if in hospital mortality is 10 percent now. But we're hospitalizing a lot of patients. And before, about half of the patients in some of these big urban hospitals were admitted to the ICU. Now I'm being told it's about a third. But now that we're hospitalizing so many patients, some percentage of them, even if it's only 10 percent, we've cut it dramatically. 10 percent is still a lot. Right. And we're going to see uh, deaths rise. We're also seeing positivity go up among older people. 
And we're seeing this get into nursing homes again. 40% of the deaths in Texas right now are people who are in nursing homes. So something that started in younger people is now seeping into an older population. So there's a lag and it's uh, and we've gotten better at it. So it will go up, but maybe it's right. There's a, so there's a lag in, in terms of time to, time to diagnosis right. and time to hospitalization and time to death. But also we're diagnosing people a lot earlier now because we're okay. diagnosing them in the community. So what's happening is before we used to diagnose them when they got admitted to the hospital. Now we're diagnosing right. them a week before they get admitted to the hospital. So the lag has gotten a little longer. All right. Thanks, Dr. Gottlieb. We appreciate it. Next on Squawk Pod, former White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney on reopening the U.S. economy. We throw so much money into this bailout, but we still don't have people uh, being tested as often as they like, as quickly as they like. Folks will, will solve this economy. They'll fix the economy on their own, but the government has to give them the tools to do that. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Today's anchors are Joe Kernan, Andrew Ross Sorkin, and Melissa Lee. Here's Andrew. In an op-ed for CNBC.com, former White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney writing that the next round of stimulus should be focused on the root cause of the recession, fighting COVID-19. Mick Mulvaney joins us right now. Mick, it's great to see you. Uh, let's go right to that piece, which is to say, uh, when you say fighting COVID-19, what do you mean by that? Because there's a lot of people that want stimulus money to go to small businesses that are still struggling. There are other people who want money to go to schools so we can try to reopen the economy. Um, and then there's others who want the money to go directly into the healthcare system. Right. And I think the latter is probably the best place to start because, face it, there's been some discussion, for example, about um, giving people money to go on vacation. The reason people are not going on vacation has something to do with the fact they don't have as much disposable income right now, but it also has a great deal to do with the fact they don't feel safe. Um, people don't feel safe sending their kids back to school. People don't feel safe visiting their elderly parents. If we could solve some of those problems, the economy will fix itself of its own, uh, of its own devices. There's increasingly a sense that we have been throwing, to some degree, good money after bad. In large part, the original programs were meant to last several months because there was a view uh, that the country was going to take this seriously, that we were going to be able to uh, stamp this out. We were going to be able to crush this virus and try to return. And that's from the timeline in terms of the way the money was set up, the ambition. Clearly, the country has not done that. Um, the question, therefore, becomes, what do we do about it? Do we keep throwing money at the business end of the problem? How much money would you throw at the medical end of the problem? It, it seems like the private, private uh, market, private sector right now seems to be at least doing a pretty good job in terms of the number of vaccines that are on the table. We'll see whether any of them work, but I'm not sure their success or failure is going to be necessarily a function strictly of money. Correct. But look at places where there could be success based upon a function of money. Uh, the uh, amount of, of personal protective uh, materials available, which we're running right. low on again in certain markets. Number two, and probably most importantly, testing. 
continues to be a challenge. People can't get tested. I'm going to visit my elderly parents this weekend. I didn't qualify to be tested here in South Carolina. So I'll go in with a little bit of trepidation. We throwed so much money into this bailout. I think the original CARES Act was over $2 trillion, but we still don't have people uh, being tested as often as they like, as quickly as they like. People are waiting a week now for their test results. Folks will will solve this economy. They'll fix the economy on their own, but the government has to give them the tools to do that. That means testing, PPE, healthcare money, as opposed to throwing money on the back end at the symptoms instead of the cause. In terms of how much money you think is in the offing, not just how much money you think should be spent, but given what you know about Washington, what do you think the appetite is right now to spend some money? Uh, appetite's probably pretty good um, to, to spend a good bit of money. My guess is it'll be at least a trillion dollars just because politicians love that next level up of money. Uh, I think what's less important than the total number right now is where that money goes. Keep in mind, they've already spent uh, between the Fed and Congress, I think northwards of, of six or seven trillion dollars worth of uh, worth of stimulus here into this economy. So the amount of money is a lot less important right now than where that money goes. And in terms of how you would direct that money, would you give it to states in terms of their testing? Would you mandate testing in a broader way? I mean, a lot of a lot of the conundrum and challenge has been, frankly, that every state has done it differently. Yeah. And that's what people have to realize is that public health in this country is and has been forever and probably will continue to be a state based system. So if you ask, they have to send the money to the to the states. Probably so. Um, Does that make uh, mean that one state is going to get it better than another? Yes, they probably will. But that's why you elect state governors. That's why you elect uh, state legislatures and so forth. The federal government cannot create a national health care system on the fly. Uh, nor should they. The, uh, health, uh, public health continues to be a local matter much more than a federal matter. So, yeah, you're going to continue to face that challenge. But that doesn't mean that these challenges are insurmountable. It doesn't mean that you should still be waiting. Here we are, what, five months into this crisis, and we're still waiting weeks to get a test e- or get test results, even if you can get tested. That's simply not excusable right now, given the amount of money that we've uh, thrown at the problem and the amount of time that we've had to fix it. Mick, how do you think the elections uh, play into the allocation of the next round of relief? I mean, the things that you're talking about, putting money into testing, putting money into vaccines, those are longer term sorts of investments as opposed to throwing money at the solvency issue that so many businesses and people across the country face. Yeah, and I don't want to diminish the solvency issue because it's real. It absolutely is. I used to be in the small business business. I used to have several small businesses, and, and, and that's a big deal. I get that. Uh, but my point when saying we should focus more on the on the root cause is that, you know, you could you could bail out uh, an airline, for example, you could bail out a cruise line, but it doesn't solve the greater problem. Um, folks want to go back to work. Folks want their kids to go to school. Uh, my kids want to go back to college. Uh, we want to go on vacation. How do we allow people to 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 allow the economy to function normally. That's what I think is lost in Washington right now. They're looking at extending the unemployment benefits. That doesn't get to the problem. If you don't solve the problem, you could extend unemployment benefits for another six months, and then you're still going to have to extend it again after that. So I don't think we're this going at the This is politics as problem. usual, though, right, Mick? It I is, mean, especially when you go into... Going after what the low-hanging fruit, so to speak. And to be allow yourself... Look, we're coming into the... Uh, the being Washington... Uh, uh, Congress goes back... Uh, to Washington for the next couple of weeks, and then they're done, uh, basically, until the election. And those uh, elected officials want to go back into their district as they run for re-election, beat their chest and say, look, we've done something. And that's great. And that's why you're going to get a bill in some fashion. I think they'd be better served by going back and say, look, we did something that's actually going to help you. You cannot buy 
elections, but you can help solve problems. And if they look at this next uh, round of stimulus in that fashion, I think it might actually be productive. And Mick, before you go, just wanted to ask you on Friday, uh, Biden came out with his jobs plan, which included those uh, tax increases. And I'm, I'm curious how you would approach it come 2021, hopefully when we are, I want to say, on the other side or at least almost on the other side of this pandemic, given the costs and the debt that we've gone into, how you would raise uh, some kind of money to at least begin to pay some of this down. Yeah. Um, listen, there's going to be a, it's the classic argument, right, Andrew, between the right and the left as to how do you raise more money? Do you take a bigger slice of the pie or a smaller slice of a bigger pie? I think if anything up until the COVID crisis that this administration had proved was that supply side economics can and does work. I took a look at Biden's plan over the weekend. He's talking about revitalizing manufacturing. We've done that already. We've created hundreds of thousands of new manufacturing jobs that the Obama administration said wouldn't ever exist again. So you can do it. You can grow the economy. You can grow the size of that pie and increase government revenues. Will there be pressure to raise taxes? Absolutely. Will it exist at the state and local level? Absolutely it will. Is that the best way to grow the economy? You know, depending on the outcome of the election, I think you get a chance to find out. And in terms in terms of raising taxes, both at the corporate level and individual level, you wouldn't you wouldn't raise taxes at all in, in, in either instance? At, listen, depending on the outcome of the election, my guess is taxes are going to go up in some fashion. If the Democrats retain the House at the very least, there's going to be tremendous pressure to raise taxes. There's no question about that. So then the question becomes, where does it come? And I think the one thing we've proven over the course of the last three and a half years is corporate taxes are not the best place to raise dough. Corporations, as anybody who understands um, economics knows, they don't pay taxes. Their shareholders pay taxes and their customers pay taxes. When we cut the corporate tax rate to 21 percent, all that happened was we grew the economy. Uh, and corporate tax, excuse me, and t- corporate tax collections went right. down, but individual tax collections went up because the economy got bigger. So I hope that message, that model has been learned. My guess right. is it probably doesn't because it doesn't fit political orthodoxy. But we, that's why we do have elections. W- but would you w- would you advocate or support raising? T- I, I understand the, the corporate tax argument. And I actually think that, that this past couple of years has, 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 has helped prove the point that you're that you're making right now. The question I would ask is on uh, on the individual level. Would it change the dynamic, given that a lot of people have gotten, you know, talk about inequality. COVID has created even more inequality uh, to a large degree. And we've talked about all of the we've talked about all of the working people who have actually gone on the front lines and, and gone to work. And yet there's been a lot of people who've made a lot of money on their backs. And the question is whether their contribution to this COVID-19 pandemic should be in the in, in the form of money. Yeah, if your question is, will there be pressure to raise taxes after the election? Absolutely, the ax- ax- uh, answer is absolutely. There will be pressure to raise the income tax rates. The question is, how far down the economic scale will it go? Will you be the rich starting at a million dollars a year or two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year? But that pressure will absolutely be there, regardless of the outcome, um, because I think folks are going to scramble to look for ways to pay for things. Uh, if they do look at an infrastructure, by the way, no one's talked about the gas tax here in a long time. Um, but if they're going to do infrastructure, they should start looking at, at, at gas taxes as a way to pay for it because prices are extraordinarily low right now. That may be the one right. place where there could be a consensus in the in the in the near term. Um, before we go, if you were if you were still in the White House with uh, with the president, how would you advise him to uh, work or not work with uh, Dr. Fauci? Um, it's listen, it's it's tough. I, I really admire Dr. Fauci, but I was also one of the persons uh, he told to go on television and tell people not to wear masks. 
I was one of the persons, one of the people who went on TV to say, um, look, you can get it from hard services. You can get it from folks who, who are asymptomatic. We're learning now that that information is not entirely right. It's a challenge um, when you when you tell the president of the United States something and it turns out to be wrong. But as a result of that, uh, we've had tremendous economic impact. It's tough that when you when you don't have credibility to work with the president of the United States, I think that's a that's a fair concern to have. I would encourage the president to continue to listen to folks who have uh, the perspectives that are different from his. I know that he will do that. You listen to the scientists. There's no question. But I don't think we should focus necessarily on that personal reaction between the president and Dr. Fauci because, again, the, the, these are real relationships, ordinary relationships. And if you've been wrong a couple times, it makes somebody wonder if you're wrong again. That's only human nature. It's so interesting, though, because with the American public, he has an enormous credibility on this issue. And so... They're, they're, right. I mean, that's 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 sure, the great but, distinction mean, here, which is I think. People, but how much of how, how much is how much is how much is the, as the media criticized Dr. Fauci? Look, look when, when he goes to a press conference, it's sort of like what I used to go when I would do press conferences. Nine tenths of the questions were about whether or not he agreed or disagreed with the president on something, not about the facts of the matter. The media plays up that interplay between the president and any of his advisors instead of getting down to brass tacks. So one of the reasons that pre the public still likes Fauci, and they should, he's a likable guy, is they don't remember that he was wrong on masks or wrong on hard surfaces or wrong on, on asymptomatic transmission. Um, the president knows it because he's dealing with, with the you know, first order information. So, look, I, I get it. I get the dynamic. I understand that. As long as the president is still getting that information, if it's coming from somebody else, that's fine. It doesn't have to be Dr. Fauci. Mick Mulvaney, we appreciate uh, your time and your perspective, as always, and look forward to uh, talking again soon. Thanks, Andrew. Next on Squawk Pod. There's a lot of stuff happening. On Netflix, that is. We'll be right back with some binging recommendations. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan and Melissa Lee, who's hanging out uh, today with us. Becky will be back a little bit later this week. I watch so many things on Netflix now because I, I really don't want to watch the news because I'm the on, news is, is so depressing. I got a show for you, Joe. I got one, too. Money Which, heist. What? A money heist. Money, money heist, heist is good? Is this a series? I'm on, I'm on episode 10 of, of Money Heist of, the, of season one. It's, it's in Spanish, but they've dubbed it, and the dubbing is amazing. It's an amazing show. 
I'm enjoying it. Is it really? I, I'll tell you, we, we've got a my new wife thinks there's, there, My wife thinks it's a little silly, that there's certain silly elements, but I'm, I'm enjoying it. You can watch the Unsolved Mysteries. That's pretty good if you like a Dateline type thing. Uh, the Epstein. Unsolved the, Mysteries? Yeah, yeah. It's back. It, isn't that like circa 1990? Doc, the Epstein doc gets a little boring, but it's just, I mean, Ghislaine. Um, I'm glad no, they, I know it's I'm glad it's they caught her because she no, was, seems like she was right. I know. Um, but okay, not that one. But that, uh, did you see the straight? But we, so we graphic. We got to move on. We got to move on. But I watched The Stranger, which is wacky, and now I'm watching Marcella. Have you seen Marcella? It's very popular. I've seen no. a couple, and it's not British, ship, and I'll, there's a lot of stuff happening. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod, available wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.